Well, good morning. A very happy sort of May long weekend to everyone. I'm sure that, uh, you know, the sun is shining. Many of us are sort of itching if, to get into our yards and do some, you know, gardens. And if you haven't done that already. Uh, but I also appreciate that in, in the midst of even this busy long weekend, uh, you have decided to take some time to spend looking into the Word of God here together with us as a church. Uh, so whether you're watching us at home, whether you're joining us here in person, uh, I encourage you to open your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 John uh, chapter 5, as this morning we're looking at verses 6 to 13. And in this passage, as you're turning there, uh, John is actually asking us to consider a very important question. Um, the question of who are you going to turn to uh, when it comes to the truth about Jesus? Uh, because we know people will say all kinds of things about Jesus. Uh, you know, when you talk about Jesus, yes, say, you know, go up to three people in the street, you probably get four different opinions about who, who Jesus is. Some say Jesus was a religious leader. Uh, they don't know very much about him. Uh, some say that he was a good example for us to follow. Some others say he was a prophet. Some say he was a martyr. Um, some people, when they say Jesus' name, it's, it's really nothing more than a swear word. Um, the Mormons will say one thing about Jesus. The Jehovah Witnesses will say another. Uh, the Muslims say something else entirely. So in that world where everybody's kind of saying different things about Jesus, the question is, who do we listen to? Whose testimony about Jesus is the one that matters? Well, in a world full of voices, again, saying all kinds of different things about Jesus, this was actually John's response as he writes it to the church. So you can follow along with me as I read 1 John chapter, uh, chapter 5, verses 6 to 13. And John says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that, we ha that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony. That God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, um, just thankful that, Lord, we can gather together as the church, as your body of Christ in this place, to open up your word, just to learn more about your Son, Jesus Christ, to hear the truth, of who he is and what he did. Because, Lord, that truth, that testimony, it matters. It is the key, it is the door to knowing eternal life. 
and to knowing the hope that we have in you, even in this fallen world in which we're called to live. Lord, the testimony of Christ makes all the difference as we live our lives day to day. And Lord, I pray that as we just gather here, as you, as we open the word, as I preach, that Lord, you would be with us, that Lord, your Holy Spirit would be among us, testifying to the truth of who Jesus is, that Lord, you would empower me as, as your servant to proclaim this truth, and that Lord, you would be glorified, uh, that Lord, we would, you would be magnified by what we learn about you here today. Magnified in our hearts, magnified in our life, and that, Lord, just we would see you as all the greater because of who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at this passage that John has written uh, to the church this morning, uh, I was actually reminded this week of a story as I was reflecting on it. Uh, It's an old story that I heard about an explorer who was sort of going through the very deep, sort of dark jungles of the Amazon. And as he was sort of cutting his way through the forest, he suddenly found himself in a clearing surrounded by a tribe of bloodthirsty cannibals, all with, you know, spears in their hands. And it didn't take long before the explorer looked around at all that was happening and losing all hope. He just, he said to himself, I'm doomed. But then suddenly... A voice boomed out from the trees all around him. says, no, you're not doomed. The voice continued, pick up a stone at your feet and throw it at the chief who is standing in front of you. Well, the explorer picked up a stone and threw it at the chief, and it was a direct hit, like right in the smack middle of his forehead. And the chief collapsed to the ground in a heap as the explorer now looked upon the unconscious body of that man. And the rest of the tribe of cannibals simply stared sort of in wide-eyed shock that quickly turned to anger. And then the voice from the trees once again shouted out saying, okay, now you're doomed. (laughs) uh, The moral of the story is be careful who you listen to uh, because they're, you know, Careful of the voices that you trust for truth. Because whether it's, you know, a booming voice in the treetops or even a spiritual teacher on your TV or even a pastor in the pulpit, not everyone is telling you the truth. Not every testimony that you hear is going to be true. Not every voice can be trusted. In fact, if you remember back to when we began studying the book of 1 John, a big reason that John is writing this letter is because false teachers were sneaking into the church and they were proclaiming, they were teaching lies about who Jesus was. And they were leading people astray, teaching falsehoods. And they were even changing, by doing that, they were even changing the very gospel message of salvation itself. And I think the passage we have before us is is one of these places in this letter where John is directly addressing the problems these false teachers were proclaiming and trying to, you know, point us towards the truth and point us to the source of truth that we need to listen to as believers. And as he says, beginning in verse 6, he says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, 
Not by the water only, but by water, by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood, and these things agree. So John is actually here telling us that there's three witnesses. There, there are three testimonies about Jesus. Three testimonies that can be trusted. Three testimonies that agree about the truth of Jesus Christ. And in writing this, John may have actually been thinking back to you know, those passages in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, that talk about the importance of establishing truth based on the testimony of two or more witnesses. Uh, passages like Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. You see, because that was sort of the standard in the Jewish mind for establishing what is true. In fact, if you go back even to the, uh, think about Jesus when he was on trial. Uh, you know, they called in all kinds of witnesses to give false testimony against him. Mark 14, verse 56 says, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. And John is pointing out this agreement between these three who give testimony is important. That's one of the points John is making. It's not just three witnesses who are, who are saying things, but three witnesses that agree with each other about the truth of Jesus Christ. And John tells us, he names these witnesses uh, that give testimony, he calls them, it's the water and the blood and the spirit. Um, and John you know, he offers his readers those three witnesses without any kind of explanation, uh, which probably means when John was originally writing these words, they didn't need any explanation. The people, you know, oh, it's, oh we heard that before kind of thing. You know, uh, the people at that time knew exactly what he was talking about when he was talking about water and blood and spirit and uh, may have even been used in some kind of, you know, church creed or some teaching in the early church. But, you know, 2,000 years later, when I was sitting in my office reading that, I'm like, oh, John, what are you doing to me? That does not make a lot of sense. Some of the meaning has been lost. Uh, so we ask ourselves, what exactly is John talking about here? Uh, who are these three witnesses, the water, the blood, and the Spirit? Well, the Spirit part is easy. It's, it's going to be the Holy Spirit that John is talking about. But what about this water and the blood? Um, well, some have tried to tie this actually to to the ordinances of uh, baptism and communion, um, which is kind of a very creative answer. You know, baptism, we use water. Uh, communion is a remembrance of Jesus' blood that was shed. So water and blood kind of makes sense. And, the, you know, the ordinances are very important uh, parts of what we do as a church. But it's far more likely that what John has in mind here when he mentions the water and the blood is first... He's mentioning Jesus' life and his ministry. And secondly, he's referring to Jesus' death on the cross. Because Jesus, if you remember, Jesus' ministry began with his baptism in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. You know, the waters of baptism. And then it ends, Jesus' ministry ends with his death on the cross and the shedding of his blood. So, you know, saying the water and the blood in the early church was, was probably a way of, of just summarizing those events. The water and the blood were, were the bookends of Jesus' life as we have it recorded for us in the Gospels. And it's interesting that both his baptism and his death, both of them come with an actual testimony about Jesus. 
At his baptism, Matthew 3, verse 17, says, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then at Calvary, you know, there was the Roman soldiers who looked upon Jesus on the cross as he died. And in Matthew 24, verse 54, said, They were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. And then, you know, if we unpack each of those even a little bit more, the water and the boat, they, they, they speak so much truth about who Jesus is. You know, beginning with, with the water, you know, as we talk about Jesus' life and his ministry. It's not just the baptism. It's not just Jesus getting wet and that's it. You know, it talks about his entire life. You know, there's the virgin birth. Now, there's the wise men from afar. There's the child, you know, Jesus, the child in the temple who amazed the scholars. You know, we, we hear word of, you know, John the Baptist who was raised up by God to prepare the way for him. There's the prophecies that are fulfilled, the miracles that he performed, the teachings that he gave that were full of wisdom and authority. He healed people. He cast out demons. He fed the multitude. There was the, the transfiguration on the mount. There's the confession of Peter that you are the Christ, the Son of God. There's just even the compassion that Jesus showed, even to sinners. It's the sinless life that Jesus lived against which no charges could be raised. It is all of that. All of that is just evidence to the truth of who Jesus is. As you look at his life, you realize he was fully human, but he was also fully divine. He was the Son of God. And his life, his sinless, perfect life of obedience and ministry, it's a testimony to who Jesus truly is. But it's not just his life. It's also his death that testifies. Because we can't overlook Jesus' death on the cross. The death of Jesus that atoned for the sins of the world. He was the Lamb of God without flaw that died to save his people from sin. Because the death of Jesus is central to the gospel. A couple of verses. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. So for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of, of his cross. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, Paul says, I delivered to you that of what is first of importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to, with the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our, for our sake he was made him to, who had no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And even John, earlier in his letter that he writes, 1 John 4, verse 10, says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The NIV says that he was an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, Jesus died for our sins. And that's essential to the gospel. But you know, part of the problem was that John had to face uh, was that the false teachers in his day they actually wanted to deny the death of Jesus. The cross, it, it just it made them uncomfortable. It wasn't sort of part of their agenda. And there's a reason for that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, he says, For the Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. 
But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And you know, there's many people, even people still here today, who just don't want to hear about the cross. It seems like foolishness to them, or, or it's a stumbling block to what they would rather believe. So they just get rid of it. And you know what? Christianity without a cross is, is a much easier religion for false teachers to sell. It's much more comfortable for people to accept. It's a much more palatable gospel to the world, you know, to preach something that is man-centered instead of cross-centered. They, they preach a gospel based on, you know, self-actualization or self-sufficiency or self-improvement. It's a gospel, though, that is without a cross. Which is why John emphasizes so strongly in this passage he says in 1 John 5, 6, he says, not by the water only. It's not just about Jesus' life, but by the water and the blood. Because John is saying you can't overlook the cross. You cannot take the blood of Jesus out of the gospel. You can't deny Jesus' atoning death without abolishing salvation itself. And yet, sadly, I think we're still seeing this happening today. You know, there's many sermons in many churches that are full of self-help and good advice and the power of positive thinking and tips for better living, but they lack the proclamation of Christ crucified. You'll hear sermons on health and wealth and all those kind of things in many churches today, and you'll probably hear more of those than you will sermons about the blood of Jesus. And that's why we don't just preach Christ, we preach Christ crucified. We preach the water and the blood. Jesus' life and Jesus' death. They both testify to the truth of Jesus. But there's one more witness, not just the water and the blood that John reveals. He also talks about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And you know, it'd be hard to overstate the importance of the Holy Spirit in our lives as believers. You know, the, the Bible tells us as Christians, we, we, we walk by the Spirit. We think on the things of the Spirit. The mind of the Spirit is life and peace. You know, Christians, we're no longer slaves to the flesh, but we walk according to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit encourages us. It empowers us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. It convicts us of sin. It gives us gifts to serve the body. The Holy Spirit produces spiritual fruit in our lives. And something else that the Holy Spirit does is we're also told very clearly in, this, in the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit assures our hearts and testifies to our spirit about the truth of our salvation. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 21, goes to 22. says, God anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14 says, And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. And even Romans 8, verse 16, says the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We have the Holy Spirit in our hearts testifying to us about the truth of Jesus. Of course, the problem with that is that there's so many others, even others outside the faith, who also claim to have the same thing. They also claim to have the Holy Spirit of God in their lives, 
and claim that same anointing, but they aren't speaking the truth. Even those false teachers were probably claiming that they were speaking by the Holy Spirit. We even had a person come to the church this last week, a couple days ago, who claimed to have a prophecy given to him by the Holy Spirit for the churches, and his words most assuredly did not come from God. And I can say that with confidence because I know his words did not line up with the Word of God. And remember, you know, John says these things, these three things, these three testimonies, they have to agree. So you can't claim to have the Holy Spirit and deny the life of Jesus, the sinless, perfect life. You cannot have, claim the Holy Spirit and also deny the death of Jesus on the cross. You cannot claim the Holy Spirit and change the truth about Jesus to make you more comfortable. Because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And Jesus himself promised his followers. A couple of verses. John 14, verse 26. says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things I said to you. And one chapter later, John 15, 26, Jesus again says, But when the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Jesus is saying one of the most important things that the Holy Spirit is going to do when he comes is he's going to reveal to us and teach us the truth about Jesus himself. And Jesus told his apostles, the Holy Spirit is going to remind you of all the things that Jesus said and all the things he did and all the things he taught. And the apostles did remember them. And they actually wrote them down for us in the word of God. And really, that's what this comes down to. When we talk about the testimony of the Holy Spirit, the best place to find that testimony and that truth is in the Bible. Because the Bible was written under the influence and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says, says, Knowing first of all, this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is truth because it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. So when you open up your Bibles, you know, any book, any chapter, any page, and you read those words, you can know that is the Holy Spirit at work. That is the Holy Spirit's testimony about Jesus. And that, all of that taken together, those three, the blood, the, 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 that's what John means when he says, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. All these three things tell us the truth about who Jesus is. And then John says in verse 9, continuing, he says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. And here I think John is just sort of simply reminding us that even though there's three different things that are testifying, you know, these three things, they all agree with each other, uh, that there are all these testimonies, the water, the blood, the spirit, all of those things are in fact the testimony of God himself. That all those three things all come from the same source of truth, and that source of truth is God. These are not the words or the testimony of men. These are not the opinions that people are trying to put forward. But these are the words and the testimony of God himself. 
So this is not one of those cases, you know, where, you know, you, you have two people who disagree, you know, and everyone can kind of have their own opinion about it, and you can sort of agree to disagree about something. No, if you want to disagree with God, you can, but you're wrong. And if you disagree with God, especially around the idea of who Jesus is, you don't, you don't have any place to stand. And yet you can. Uh, you actually, you have that choice. You can disagree. You can choose not to believe. Uh, just as John says, continuing in verse 10, says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Now John's saying either you either believe in Jesus or you don't believe in Jesus. The choice is yours. But he's also, I think, saying that one thing you cannot do is try to find some middle ground there. You, one thing you cannot do is just say, well, I'm going to come up with a new version of Jesus from my own imagination, and I'm going to believe in him instead. It actually reminds me, there's, there's, there's a place in Japan, Kyoto, uh, called the Temple of a Thousand Buddhas. Uh, and the temple is filled with a thousand statues, all likenesses of Buddha, but each one is just a little bit different from, from the next. They're all different, a thousand of them. And it said worshipers can go into this temple and they can browse. They can, they can look around and, and then they can kind of pick the one Buddha that, you know, that they like best or the one Buddha that they think resembles them the most. And then they can worship that Buddha. And I think many Christians try to approach Jesus the same way. Where they look at Jesus and they say, oh, I'm going to pick the parts of Jesus that I really like best and I'm going to make those my truth. Because lots of people like Jesus the healer. They like Jesus who's the friend of sinners. But you know, the Jesus who t turns over the tables in the temple and preaches hell in outer darkness, that's not really the Jesus they want to talk about. So they ignore it. You know, the Jesus who calls us to carry our crosses and to put our hand to the plow and to count the cost, for many, that, that's too extreme. So many just simply choose to follow the kind of Jesus who wants us to be happy and, you know, save us from the discomfort of hell. But you can't do that. You cannot make up your own Jesus. You cannot make up your own gospel based on the things that you wish were true and expect that gospel to still save you. The only Jesus we can receive, the only Jesus in which we can believe is the one that is testified to us through the water and the blood and the Spirit. The Jesus that John proclaimed, the Jesus that Paul preached, the Jesus that the Gospels reveal to us, the Jesus of the Bible. And believing in that Jesus, it matters. Because believing in that Jesus, you know, the true Jesus and his life and his death, it doesn't just make a difference in our lives. It makes all the difference. As we look at the rest of this passage that John writes for us at the beginning of verse 11, he says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And he says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And John returns here to one of his favorite topics. The topic of eternal life. In fact, eternal life is the reason that John is writing. He's saying, I'm writing this so that you know that you have it. 
And eternal life is the reason that Jesus came. Eternal life is something that God wants us to have. And we're told in this passage that eternal life is the end result of believing in the true testimony about Jesus. Because eternal life comes only through Jesus. In our passage, verse 11, this life is in his Son. And verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Jesus is the key to eternal life. And we see that in other places in the Bible. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And even John 3, 16 and 17, we're told God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, Jesus is the means. He is the path. He is the way, the one and only way to know eternal life. But what is eternal life? You know, eternal life is kind of one of those terms that we, in Christian circles, you know, we we toss around leisurely like a Frisbee at a church picnic. And most people, if they're asked, probably would just say, well, eternal life means uh, you live forever in heaven once you die. And It's years without end, and we don't really think much more about it than that. But when you think about it like that, you know, you you might think, well, that's a really long time. You may may get bored. I might run run out of things to do. Maybe I'll, you know, have to take up a hobby just to pass the time. Is it like, you know, there's only so much to discover, but at least it's forever, uh, you know. There's even an, an article in the New York Times called The Downside of Immortality, that basically said, if immortality is real, we're all ending up bored because you're going to run out of stuff to do. But you need to hear this. Eternal life in Christ is anything but boring because eternal life is all about knowing Jesus. John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing Christ. And you know, could anything be better than that? Let me ask yourself, can you ever get tired of knowing an infinitely amazing God more intimately? If you ask me, that's not a definition of border, that's a definition of passion. Actually, think about Paul, you know, whose, whose whole purpose in life, his passion in life was to know God. It's all he wanted to do. I mean, listen to his words in Philippians 3, beginning of verse 7. He says, well, Whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When you hear Paul talk about knowing Christ, 
I mean, that's something that should get you out of bed in the morning. That's a reason for living, and I mean truly living, and that is eternal life. A life of eternally discovering more about the greatness of Jesus. In fact, the Greek word for eternal life, um, it doesn't just talk about quantity. The Greek word is not just answering the question, how much? It goes on forever. In the Greek, the word also contains, it speaks to quality. It also answers the question of how good. And that this is not just life, but it is true life. It's abundant life. That's why it's also a mistake to think of eternal life as something that only happens after we die. Because we don't have to wait for it. Uh, John 3, verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That entire verse is in the present tense. Eternal life begins now. If you believe, you have it already. It begins the moment we believe. It is our current possession as Christians. One commentary by Rick, uh, Eric Raymond uh, put it like this. It says, the, John's goal was to provide clarity and confidence to those who believe in Christ. He wanted them to know that eternal life was to be enjoyed by experience as they believe. In other words, for all those presently, who, who presently believe in Christ, there is eternal life to be presently enjoyed. When we think of eternal life the way that Jesus and his apostles lay it out, then we are truly encouraged. He says our minds and our hearts are unfastened from the rusted out sinking ship of this world and firmly applied to the soul-satisfying truth of God's eternal world word. This is the charter of the eternal kingdom, the happiness, satisfaction, freedom, confidence, comfort, and humility that come to the believer are the beams that radiate from the center of the gospel, and it begins now, and it lasts forever. Then he says, this is good news, and it is. Eternal life is not just forever life. It is living life with Christ, experience his fellowship now and for eternity. And John is writing this letter so his, so his readers can make that life their own. So you know what? I want to do the same thing as I close this morning. And I just want to point each and every one of you here to Jesus so that you too can know eternal life. And you know, there's, there's no real special formula for attaining that. There's no magic words that you have to say to make this happen. John tells us simply that we believe. We believe in Jesus' sinless life. We believe in his atoning death. We believe the Holy Spirit who testifies to who Jesus is through the word. We believe and we make that truth our own. And you know, early we asked that question about you know, who is Jesus? And if your answer is, I believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and I believe that Jesus died for my sins on the cross, and I believe that Jesus is now my Lord and my Savior, who I get to know more and more every day, then eternal life is yours to begin living. In fact, you've already started. Because as John says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, I just 
This week, as I was reading these words, I think I was convicted that too often we do not pause long enough to reflect on the promise that you have given us. That whoever has the Son has life. Because, Lord, that simple thought is so profound and so life-changing that it should change everything about us. And Lord, I pray that as we think that, as we believe in that, Lord, we would just continue to have our hearts pointed to Jesus, pointed to his sinless life, pointed to his atoning death, and pointed to the word of God that reveals to us who Jesus is through the Holy Spirit. And I pray that in knowing that Jesus, the Jesus that you yourself testify to us about, that in knowing that Jesus, we would know that we have eternal life and that nothing more is required. We don't have to add legalism or any other thing because it's all in the Son. And that, Lord, that promise of eternal life is not just for one day. Lord, it is for us as believers for every day. That life of knowing you more, that life of discipling, of life of joy, the life abundant that Christ promised to his followers, that, Lord, that is ours now. We can taste of the kingdom even here on this earth. And, Lord, I pray that we would just hold fast to that. That, Lord, we would trust in that truth. We would believe in that truth. We would hold fast to Jesus and the hope that we have in him. And that, Lord, we would just continually point our hearts to Jesus Christ, knowing him for who he truly is. In Jesus' name, amen.